gets colder My eyes go thin as I get older Piece in pieces, bloody and bruised I feel so helpless and confused Cause I hear screaming on the left, yelling on the right I'm sitting in the middle trying to live my Welcome to Focus on the Facts, everyone. This is your host, Patricia Negron, with today's guest, author, minister, and child advocate, Kevin Annette. Kevin has spearheaded an effort to hold governments and institutions accountable for their barbarity against the innocent, with the first successful prosecution and conviction of the Vatican, Canada, and the Crown of England for crimes against humanity. His book, Murder by Decree, is an uncensored record of the planned extermination of indigenous children in Canada's murderous Indian residential schools, a theme we continue to see play out today all over the world, in Palestine, India, Bolivia, and elsewhere. As part of a broader effort to empower the public at large to hold criminals in power accountable, Kevin has published several books, including his 2017 book, The Common Law Training Manual, and the 2018 Case for Canada, both of which are indispensable tools to educate and mobilize the average citizen to reclaim their freedom from arbitrary rulers and their tyranny. In breaking news regarding Kevin's work, 12 individuals, including a former Canadian Prime Minister, were publicly charged on February 26 for their roles in ongoing excuse me, in an ongoing criminal conspiracy to aid and abet genocide and other criminal activity in Canada. Welcome back, Kevin. It's good to have you on the show again. It's great to be back. Thanks a lot, Patricia. I want to talk a little bit about your work. Uh, We've been, you've been on the show many times with um, the previous host, Evelyn Pringle, who recently passed away. And I, I want to, um, extend her work by talking some more about what you're doing and your success uh, with the previous convictions of the Vatican, Canada, and Crown of England, as well as this latest development, and ways, you know, your goal, obviously, as you state in publishing these books, is to empower others. So, you know, you've got the ball rolling here. So tell us a little bit about that, and then let's talk about, you know, making this a, a possibility for the broader public at large and get this movement going on a, on a global level where, you know, nations of people feel empowered to to carry it forward. Yeah, I'd love to. As a matter of fact, you know, that's exactly the situation now. It is spreading this notion that uh, what we call the common law, it, the recognition, as was in the American Founding Fathers' Declaration, that sovereignty is inherent within all of us and that means not only does the government come from us but so does the law and when the law isn't doing its job we the people have the right to establish those inquiries in common law courts that can bring in the convictions and the, and stop these crimes against our children or or really any threat against our liberty or our lives and it's it's interesting that the reason we've had so much success is because of the people around us, because there's a shift happening in humanity where people are independently in their own way all recognizing, or they're waking up to the same reality that we need to take back our lives from really this runaway, corporatized, 
tyranny, um, you know, that's bigger than, than individual governments. It's running in, or the world and destroying it. We have to find a way for citizens not to wait for a politician to act for them, but to take back that power themselves. And that's really our strength is really in the people who are waking up to that. And on that basis, not only were we able to convict um, Pope Benedict and force his resignation along with three other top cardinals, but we've really spurred a whole global movement around awareness of the crimes against children, but also how we hold people accountable. And so this latest thing that's happened in Canada is an example of that, and we can get into the details of that. But, um, you know, I think for me it's a very encouraging time for all of those reasons. Well, let's talk about uh, the work that you've done. You know, one of I try. You know, I do a daily live stream, and the topic of individual sovereignty and you know uh, throwing off these oppressive uh, institutions comes up often. And I think the biggest um, obstacle for most of the public is like, how, where do you start? Always feeling this need to get, uh, you know have someone um, oversee the process, like an official yeah. or someone who's experienced or, or any of that. And I, and I think, you know, what you've shown us here and, and really is the principal element of this is that we are all experts at what is best for each of us individually. And so <laughs> yeah. you know, by that very nature, we are best qualified to make these decisions for ourselves and our families. So can you walk us through sort of like the, you know, how to overcome these mental hurdles that have been put in place deliberately to yeah. disempower us and, and taking those initial steps? How do you reach out to people and how do you, how do you get the ball rolling? Well, you know, there's another book that's really helpful in that. You mentioned the Common Law Training Manual. Another one I wrote um, called Truth Teller Shield, a handbook for whistleblowers. It really walks people through what we can expect when we begin to speak out and to take action and how we can maneuver around all of the counterattacks that happen. Um, those books you can get on Amazon that are under my name, Kevin Annett. But the important lessons there, it really comes down to simple common sense. When you know of a problem in your community, the, the first basic thing to do is to be able to name it very clearly and have evidence to back up with what you're talking about. Now, that normally isn't a problem. Um, the problem is, in, like you say, is in people's minds to think that we can take action, we can initiate it, because we've been raised to think in terms of deferring all the time to some authority figure and some so-called expert. And we are the expert of our own lives and our problems. It's really a question of getting people to take seriously their own experience. And that's a hard part because it's funny, like sitting in um, healing circles of people who are being raped or traumatized at a young age. And, uh, you know, what you see in there is the same process of deep denial. Well, I wasn't hurt too badly. Everybody goes through that. I'm coping with it now. It's really hard for people to name their hard realities. And... Uh, you know, not just their personal pain, but the pain we're living in, a kind of, uh, like I said, a runaway society where there isn't any rule of law anymore. I mean, I just got a, um, a notice a couple of days ago of from a woman who all she had done, this was in Sacramento, all she had done was sit on a park bench and the cop told her to move and she didn't. She got five days in solitary and there was no appeal. It's My like there's God. no, what we're raised to think of America is or any so-called democracy 
it's not really there anymore in practice. And so we, we kind of wake up to the fact that, wait a minute, we've got to draw a line here now and take back our country, <laughs> take back our lives. And once people are awoken to that urgency, then they start, you know, equipping themselves. And they know what to do. There's an incredible amount of goodwill and common sense among people. We just have to kind of tap into it and encourage it. Kevin, if, when you started the process for these convictions um, regarding the Vatican, how, what did you do? How did you, how did you start? Uh, who did you call? And do you have to be in person to do this? Well, you know, it was, I was fortunate in that for many years I'd worked as a minister um, and as an activist kind of on the street. I knew a lot of people, and they knew about me. Um, especially after I got fired and targeted for bringing out the crimes of genocide in these Indian schools, I got invited. What really led to the conviction was um, after I got a lot of stuff in Canada recognized, I was pretty much blacklisted. I got censored out of the media in Canada. That was around 2008 because the Canadian government brought in their own spin on what had happened in these schools, and it conflicted with what I had brought out, so I was kind of buried publicly at that point. But it was kind of funny because that door closed, but another one opened. I got invited over to Dublin, Ireland by a bunch of survivors of the Catholic Church over there. And I just went in and sat down with these folks and listened. And um, the stories were identical, the same kinds of crimes, killings, death rates, cover-ups, same deal. And uh, people realized that they had to start linking hands across borders, that, you know, we're dealing with an international corporation called the Vatican, the oldest and most murderous corporation on the planet, and we had to unite in you know directly one to one. So the first thing was just familiarizing yourself with the people and their problem, and that's the second is you bring in this whole ingredient of the common law, which says, you know, when the courts are not doing their job, when they're complicit in a crime, then people can conduct their own inquiries. That's the first thing we did. We, we gathered together the evidence. We held public forums. We said, anyone with knowledge, come in and share. Um, and then we convened a common court on that basis. According to, you know, due process, uh, all the rules of legal evidence, so the way a court is conducted, we did that. And the, the power of it was two things. We had all the evidence. It was incontrovertible evidence. Because, for example, I often tell people, I've never been sued. In 25 years of doing that work, in other words, they're saying, yeah, it's right. You're not saying anything that isn't true. They just attack me personally, which is a sign of weakness on their part because they can't counter what we're saying. They can only create fog around the issue. And so the existence of the evidence is really important. But then the second essential factor is that you put it out there publicly and you embarrass these people because the only strength we really have is that kind of public exposure and then they start shooting themselves in the foot resigning exposing themselves it's it's like when you're people who are still in power who have done these crimes they're hypersensitive you can provoke them very easily and i often say to people you got to go after what people love and in the case of these churches and governments it's their money and their public reputation you threaten that and they start collapsing and we found that over and over again um you know, the, the, the only reason the, the acknowledgement in Canada came out about these Indian schools is we began occup peacefully occupying churches on Sunday morning and threatening their, the money in the collection plate. That's when you start getting a response. So that's kind of, in microcosm, an example of what you need to do, right? Right. So um, let's say, you know, for, 
for listeners who are, you know, very new to this idea, I mean, for you and me, it's something that we've contemplated somewhat, you obviously much more than me, but it's, it's an entirely new concept for the typical American. And um, we're seeing it emerge, actually, in various forms around the globe. Um, the, in France, for example, as part of those Gilets jaunes protests, they're talking about direct democracy. And this is an example of exactly that, where, you know, the citizens themselves are determining what's okay and what's not okay and making decisions about, you know, individuals who deliberately harm others um, in the, in that context. And so you, from your background for, and for obvious reasons, um, are focusing on the churches and religious institutions. Um, but what about, so, um, and you know, again, I'm just going to pursue this with you in in very practical terms for others who, who want to attempt this, um, and just get, let's get some, some, uh, stories going. Let's talk about it. Let's normalize it. it. This should be comfortable for anyone to think about and discuss. Whereas, you know, at the moment, people cringe and think anarchy. You know, and that it, uh. you know, it, it's either the systems we've got in place now or nothing. You know, the right. the devil you don't know. Well, it actually, when you said uh, it's a strange concept to people, it actually isn't. All you have to do is open the U.S. Constitution. And it's funny because the FBI has recently said that people who use the word sovereignty or sovereign are potential domestic terrorists. Well, I guess that, that means John Adams, Tom Jefferson, and Ben Franklin were all terrorists because they went on a lot about that word. And um, it, it's a sign that, you know, these ideas are not new. They're very old ideas, and they have to do with whether people can govern themselves or whether they should be governed by a ruler. And we know the answer to that. The whole tradition in America is that, no, we can govern ourselves. And I want to give you a really specific example of how Americans are doing that right now. Um, a few years ago in Rolling Stone magazine, they reported, and I met these folks, there are some people in Grant Township, Pennsylvania. That's kind of central Pennsylvania. And about six years ago now, this thing, PGE, was uh, Pennsylvania General Energy Company. They announced they were going to come into Grant Township, which is kind of a secluded rural area. There's only about 700 people there. And they're going to dump their wastewater from fracking there, and you probably know what fracking is, um, but it, they take all these chemicals that they've used to force out, you know, natural gas and oil out of the ground, and then they go dump it in these different areas. Well, the people in Grant Township got together and said, whoa, wait a minute, we do not want this on our land. And these are folks, they united, they were Republicans and Democrats, they united across those kind of artificial lines. And um, they said, no, you're not allowed in a community. Well, PGE then gets a court injunction. They even get the Environmental Protection Association to back them up. You know, uh, and the Pennsylvania Supreme Court says, no, you will allow this fracking. And what they did, they looked into the history of the Pennsylvania state constitution, and it gave towns the right to take back legal authority. They're called, it's called a home rule charter. And they passed a home rule charter in Grand Township saying, we have nullified the decision of the Supreme Court. We are the ultimate authority, not the state court. And we are saying no. 
Not only that, we are giving people the legal right to civil disobedience to stop standing away of this setting up these fracking sites or fracking dumping sites. And, uh, you know, then there's a big standoff. The state went after the lawyer, their lawyers. There's been an ongoing struggle, but they're not backing down. And they're saying we, the people, have the right to have this local self-governance when the state and the company and the government are all conspiring to destroy our water and threaten our, our, our health and lives. So that's a perfect example of, um, you know, how we fight back. And these people are great. I mean, I've had them on my radio show. Um, Judy Wenchison is her name. Um, She's kind of, kind of an older woman who's led this fight. But these are just ordinary folks who, who were determined to exercise their rights as Americans, to have, you know, clean water and, and self-governance. And I think that's an example of how people learn. You go through a struggle and you learn as you go. There isn't any blueprint just basic principles, right? Right. So, so when approaching these issues of, um, you know, these international cartels that, uh, and, you know, as you point out, this has to cross borders. When you're approaching something like the Vat, you know, crimes committed by the Vatican, um, my understanding of by what I read in your book about um, running these tribunals is that it really is just a question of a group of people agreeing on uh, reviewing the evidence for against someone or an organization institution for crimes. And um, when, you know, when you're looking for people to initiate a process going forward, what would you say are the key considerations as you, you know, do you want to have in mind already, you know, what you want to go after specifically, or, you know, what would you recommend for people who are just, you know, trying to test this out as a, as a initial step? Well, you know, the first thing is they've got to know the problem and not just know what the problem is. You know, say fracking, or we've done campaigns in California where people stop the installation of smart meters uh, or these 5G towers that are causing so much health problems. Um, and uh, you've you got to have the evidence. And that's kind of a new idea for people because when you set up a common law court, it's not a kangaroo court. It's not out to lynch somebody. You've got to work according to the rules of law and the, and, and the rules of evidence. And that says, look, Somebody's saying, yeah, I heard this about this situation. That's, that's um, innuendo and hearsay. That's not admissible in a court of law. You have to have hard evidence backed up by eyewitnesses willing to come into court and testify. And you've got to give the other side the chance to help select the jury, you know, like what you see on TV in a courtroom trial. There's got to be fair disclosure on every front. And that's why often uh, when people get together to try to resolve a problem, you try to resolve it by sitting down first without going to court. They have what's called examination, where people can, the two sides can sit down, look at the evidence, try to hash out an agreement before you ever go to court. So, like I say in the common law training manual, you've got to go through those steps. You can't just go and get this, these people, right? I mean, you know, um, and, and so that's the important thing to remember. You, you can't determine what a verdict is going to be when you bring 12 men and women together. You, you have faith that those people, if they're not influenced and look at all the facts soberly, are going to come to a just verdict. And that's really what the strength of America is, is that the court, if the courts don't work that way, you don't have justice on any front. And uh, we, so really what these common law courts, there's kind of a bigger agenda here, and that is to reestablish uh, 
you know, the rule of law uh, and, like you say, real direct democracy in America. And that's that because America has always been the example to the world of how people have actually done that, not just talked about it. Right. Um, so, I mean, all of th- those things are essential, the evidence, the due process. Uh, but then the thing, the power we have that these big moneyed interests don't have is that we have numbers. We have to support a lot of people on the ground, but we have to get people to believe in themselves. And they need an example of that. They've got to look to some people who have done that successfully. And that's the power of our work, because, I mean, we brought down a pope. <laughs> you can't shoot much higher, right? Right, right. So, uh, you know, the, as you point out, you need the evidence. And one of the, you know, marvelous aspects of um, the Internet today is, it's allowed the development of these crowdsourced efforts, which can consolidate, you know, really great primary source data on just about any topic, as well as, you know, dozens of experts who um, also some frauds who chime in, but you always get to a good answer because, you know, the, the, um, the frequency analysis will tell you which is the more likely answer, and you can um, either find data to corroborate it or refute it. And so, you know, now that we have a, a solid mechanism in place where we can accumulate this data and, and organize it very quickly and easily, how do you narrow in, you know, of course, you don't go into the process with a verdict in mind. However, you have to go into, you have to decide on a question, you know, where, where we have, for example, in the United States, individuals like Mike Pompeo, um, uh, John Bolton, and others who are known war criminals, and the evidence is already available to all of us to review in an, in a um a structured setting, um, you know, where do you, where do you think in terms of developing a strategy, you know, the, it's, it seems to me there is the question of, you point out you were able to uh, succeed in these convictions at the very highest levels. Um, and then, and then there's the question of successfully um uh, detaining the individual, the criminals right. um, for, for executing yep. the punishment, and you also so you've also done some work on deputizing sheriffs and um, and things along those lines. So then it's like, okay, practically speaking, the average American is trying. You know, as you point out in this Pennsylvania community, they're just you know they're learning as they go. They're just pushing forward and um, will not be given uh, an answer they don't like. So where do we start? Do we start with people we, you know, the, the big fish and then and then try and follow through with the detentions? Or, you know, what is your perspective on that? Or, or do, you know, is it, you know, for morale, do you aim for someone that you think you can apprehend and, and properly um, follow through with, you know, whatever punishment yeah. is... Um, oh. Yeah, let me talk about each of those things systematically. First of all, it's very important. The two things you raised about, especially about enforcement, um, what is our aim in all of this? It's to stop a problem. It's not to tinker with it. It's not to have, like, the courts that exist now basically operate according to those who have the most money. And the way they resolve an issue and the notion of justice in most lawyers' minds is financial settlement. 
okay, you've, your, your child has been killed, you go to the people who did it, and you get a, 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 you know, a, a compensation for it, and then a gag order where you can't talk about it anymore. Well, that isn't justice. That's the right. wealthy buying their way out of the situation. It's like in Canada, right. we, we exposed that 60,000 children have been systematically murdered, sterilized, thrown in mass graves. The government and churches come back and say, okay, here's an apology and 10,000 bucks for any, every victim who survived, but they got to indemnify us so we did, we weren't actually guilty of anything. That's their notion of justice. It's obscene. Um, and yeah. so when we're talking about real justice, it's stopping a problem, restoring what was taken from people, uh, making sure our children aren't harmed anymore. It's, it's what they call restorative justice, right? Yes. So, okay, and now in order to get that, um, uh, we have to talk about enforcement, because after you get a verdict, okay, how do you enforce it? Well, in the common law, all of the people, it's community enforcement. We all have to take responsibility for making sure that, uh, for example, the, the conviction that came in about the Vatican was this is a transnational criminal body. People have got to stop giving money to it. They've got to make sure the government's canceled tax exemptions. I and mean, otherwise, we're aiding and abetting crime and the rape and trafficking of children as we speak. So um, enforcement is a very important issue. We go into that a lot in the, in the common law training manual. Um, basically, it's the obligation of everybody. Like the notion of, you know, in the old West shows, posses, that comes from a Latin word. It's from an old uh, tradition in England where all of the men in a village were responsible for detaining somebody who had harmed somebody else. So it's not a lynch mob. It's everybody has to do that. We need community, community policing. And so that's an important part of any verdict comes in. We all have to enforce it. Otherwise, we're complicit in something. Um, but in terms of the, uh, how you get that verdict, the, the position of a citizen prosecutor is essential. You need somebody really well knowledgeable about an issue to conduct a prosecution against these, these people or in institutions. And, um, that's in the, and, and in terms of who they go after, like you said, the question of, of who you actually target, uh, generally the rule is you can't aim too high because the higher you aim, the less likely you're going to get a conviction. Although in our case, we took advantage of the crisis in the Catholic Church. Uh, the fact that these people, the evidence was already coming out about their you know, nefarious activities, and all these survivors of rape and torture by priests were all coming forward. So the advantage was on our side. But normally that isn't the case. You go up against uh, you know, powerful people, and it's very hard to prove your case. So you've got to think strategically who we're going to aim at and what's the likelihood of a conviction. Otherwise, if you try it and fail, we often discourage people and we're shooting ourselves in the foot, right? Right. And so um, this is where, you know, uh, encouraging people to, to test this out, um, you know, becomes a little bit tricky because at the same time, you, you know, as you want these successes and, and you want experience, I mean, you know, it, it, um, it may be, as you point out, these are local issues, perhaps, you know, people might feel more comfortable pursuing matters on a local level just to get the experience of um, the process and then moving on toward some of these bigger issues. Because, again, as you point out, none of this is going to stop until these people are physically prohibited 
from right. conducting these kinds of activities. There, I mean, it's been going on for a couple thousand years now. I think we can reasonably yep. conclude that uh-huh. it isn't going to stop based on the systems that we've been using uh, in the past. And so, um, you know, the, you know the, the, then, then there's the question of, you know, as a um, man of the cloth and of the church, you know, where you have these, you have these individuals, and I recognize that this is not a, an issue that needs uh, answering or a question that needs answering now at all, but it's one I think that um, asking oneself is important because it sort of provides the overall um, uh, framework for thinking about these things. But, you know, again, when you're talking about genocidal individuals who have a long history of conducting these kinds of activities and have the means, motive, and desire um, and wherewithal to continue carrying out these activities and have voiced um, their intent to continue carrying out these activities, you know, you're talking about individuals that will always be a threat so long as they, you know, live on this planet. And, um, you know, what is your, just in in terms of, you know, wh- what punishment, um, you know, a commun- communities uh, should contemplate in yep. carrying out their attempts at justice? What, can, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, people never act alone. Uh, the media tends to focus on individual perpetrators like Harvey Weinstein, all these people. We, they can kind of a buzz off to three minutes of hate against some public figure. Okay, but that's a maneuver to distract from the fact that under the law and to po- in politics and religion, genocide and the harming of children has never been a crime in practice. It's almost rewarded. You know, in Canada, they changed the criminal code, and similar in states in America, it's only one-year mandatory imprisonment for raping a child, but you get five years, two to five years for owning a marijuana plant. So the, the law says time and again, raping a child isn't a, isn't a crime. Uh, it's like killing isn't a crime if you do it at the behest of the state. You can't go and kill somebody by yourself, but you can kill on behalf of the state and get a medal for it in war. Um, It's that same thing. So people never act alone. The reason when we set up our tribunal in 2010, the ITCCS, International Tribunal of Crimes of Church and State, um, and I urge people to go to murderbydecree.com to look at that whole history. When we set up that tribunal, the focus was not on individual perpetrators, although they would be named. It was on the institutions that are protecting them, like the policy in the Roman Catholic Church, still in effect, Brought in in 1929, every pope supports it, including the present one. It says when children are raped, the police are not to be told, and everyone is to be silenced. And if you talk about it, you're excommunicated, (laughs) which to a Catholic means you go to hell because God doesn't like you snitching on the rapist, apparently. Um, That's the mindset. That's the legal system in place. They say that law is more important than the laws of America. So it's really committing treason. It's saying America to American Catholics, you have to obey the Pope in Rome and cover up child abuse rather than domestic child protection laws. And that's a system in place by which every Catholic priest in America knows they can rape and get away with it. Yeah, as long as you have that policy in place and the government goes along and allows the church to do that, yeah, you're going to get a whole... It, 
any child rapist knows they can get ordained as a priest and get away with it. That's the regime you've got. So it's kind of like saying to the trying to clean house in the mafia. Well, I mean, do you go after the individual uh, hitmen, or do you ask, well, who's in charge, right? And what's the mindset and their own legal system in charge that's allowed these things? So that's kind of the general answer about, you know, who we go after. Um, what is the other aspect of your question? Remind me. Um, wh- what are your thoughts about, you know, say you were to apprehend Pope Francis um, or, or the Queen of England, what, what was the, you know, what would be the um, punishment that the tribunal decided would be appropriate for individuals of that well, know, verdict, level? In yeah, the verdict that came in, there was a, the first common law, just to back up a bit, the, the, the common law verdict that came in um, that forced Ratzinger to step down because he knew it was coming down. He resigned two weeks before it came down after uh, being told that he would face arrest um, if he left the Vatican. Um, the verdict was that he and Elizabeth Windsor, so-called Queen of England, and 28 other people named in the indictment, they were all guilty of crimes against humanity and concealing those crimes, and they were given in absentia life imprisonment, loss of income, property, authority. At that point, it meant... Uh, under international law, these people can be arrested on site. They've lost their authority. That's why Ratzinger's never left the Vatican since that day. He knows he can face arrest. Other courts can issue arrest warrants based on the verdict of our citizen inquiry. That's one of the powers of it. Um, so, yeah, they would face what any man or woman would face because they're not protected by their office ultimately. That's what came out of the Nuremberg trial at the end of World War II, the precedent that the United Nations and every international human rights group theoretically follows, and that is it doesn't matter what your office is, you are liable as a human being for your acts or what's done in your name. They have what's called command responsibility. They're head of a church, head of a government. They're even more liable because they've got all this authority. And uh, so, yeah, they would, they would in, you know, face whatever sentence a man or woman would normally face for doing these crimes or overseeing them. So tell us about your current work and um, what you've got planned uh, in the coming weeks regarding the latest developments. Well, you know, Patricia, it's really interesting because when you do something is really important. Timing is very important. Right now in Canada, I don't know if this has been covered in the press in America, but um, all across Canada, there's these massive protests happening by Native people. They're blockading roads, uh, train lines. They're stopping trains and trucks all over Canada. And yes. it's because the Chinese are building a pipeline across northern British Columbia, liquid natural gas. The Chinese are buying up a lot of the resources of Canada. Uh, the present Prime Minister Trudeau has res- removed all restriction on Chinese investment, and he's even, get this, brought in a law allowing China to station their troops on Canadian soil to protect Wow. Foreign Investment Protection Act. So um, Canadians are up in arms about this, believe it or not, despite them tending to be mild-mannered people. There's all these protests breaking out. So we thought, now this is the time strategically to talk about this stuff. The 12 people I named in this... um, indictment today is uh, not just the former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien, but all of these people who for 25 years have conspired to stop any evidence of this real genocide from coming out. These are 
uh, RCMP officers, uh, former government officials, United Church officials who tried to destroy not only my life but the movement I had started. I've named them all. And the way I've named them is it's a notice of liability. It's not a lawsuit. It says, look, you have the opportunity to settle this honorably, to admit what you did, to restore what you took, to stop doing these criminal activities. And if you can do that, you won't get sued. So it's an offer to them. It's like a contract. And the power of a contract is if they refuse it, then they're acting in bad faith. And the onus is on them to prove why they're, they're you know, acting this way. And strategically, that's a really important tool for people to use. If you um, want to go after somebody, you don't have to sue them right away. You just send them a notice of liability saying, you know, you are liable for these things. I can prove it. You caused damage to me. Now do the honorable thing. Let's settle. And it gives, gives them a way out, which, you know, one of the people I read all the time is Sun Tzu in The Art of War. He was a Chinese general who wrote 3,000 years ago. He wrote, how you beat a bigger opponent, you, it's all about maneuver. And you um, give them a way out because if you back somebody into a corner, they're going to fight that much harder. If you give them a way out of a situation, powerful people tend to take that because they don't want to look bad. They don't want to lose money. They're more vulnerable right. than you and I. Don't forget that. <laughs> people right. in authority right. are very vulnerable, and we aren't as much, right? So um, that's what we're doing, and we're finding it's already getting a, a real uh, response um, because you're going to see uh, a lot of this stuff about missing Native women, uh, missing Aboriginal families. They're being forced off their land by Chinese death squads, basically, working with RCMP officers. They're terrorizing Natives off the land to get the liquid natural gas, the oil, the water, the uranium, all over Canada is being grabbed by the Chinese, and Native people stand in the way of that. So you're seeing a big spike now in the number of disappearances and people being killed. It's all coming from that big money source again. Now it's the Chinese. It used to be the Americans and the British. Now it's the Chinese that are the new empire coming in. And, you know, they're very scared of that coming out. So what you do in that situation can have a great impact far beyond your numbers if you plan it at the right moment. So that's timing is really important, and that's kind of what we're seeing right now. So um, we, there has, you know, in the alternative media, there is some coverage of that going on. And, you know, this is a tactic that we're seeing also being used by the French in a massive historic national strike where they're just shutting down the trains and all yeah. commerce. And um, it, it seems to be really a uh, powerful way to combat the momentum at any um, rate, but, you know, turning it back the other direction is another matter altogether. But I, you know, um, your point about, you know, offering the adversary a way out is, is a really interesting one that we're seeing in the Mideast today, you know, with uh, Netanyahu and Erdogan and these other figures backing themselves into a corner. And, you know, it's, it's, is becoming um, alarmingly obvious that, as you point out, when people are put in those situations, they only uh, react even more strongly. So, um, you know, we're, it, it, it can present an existential threat yeah. um, if, if, it's, uh, if that vein is pursued. So, so where, what can people do um, in the course of supporting your work? 
what and and what you're doing actively today the the current efforts underway um what would you ask you know listeners to do and um and suggestions that they can take with them to help again expand this movement further well, beyond you know where first of all uh contact me because I, I spend a lot of my time on the road uh i get a much better response in america than Canada, because Americans already have this notion kind of somewhere in their mind that we're citizens of a republic, uh, the government's answerable to us, whereas in Canada, you don't get that. It's like you're, you're drilled into your head from day one, you're a subject of the crown. You don't have any rights unless they're given to you. I mean, all of this nonsense. So in America, um, I spend a lot of my time actually giving workshops on the common law, giving t- talks. And folks can contact me at thecommonland at gmail.com um, if they want to set up a, a time. I'm coming through again in the spring and summer across America, so we can definitely meet up. Get my books on Amazon, Kevin Annett. Uh, you know, get the Common Law Training Manual. Get some friends together and just read it together and, and think of how can I apply this to a problem in our community we want to work on, right? Um, if you go to our site, murderbydecree.com, you'll see all my books our radio show on Sunday, blog radio, called Here We Stand. It's on 6 o'clock Eastern Time. And um, I would say the most important thing is to realize that, um, you know, this is a matter of urgency. Like, I don't have to tell anyone how things are getting so much worse on every front. And we are uh, our own answer on this. Nobody's going to save us, right? So... um, this is imperative that we take this. It's a matter of life and death. And I find that when people shift their priorities away from their nine to five existence to taking responsibility for the world around them and for themselves, um, then miracles start happening. There's all this power out there among people that all we have to do is exercise. We're like this sleeping giant. And once we awaken, the so-called rulers have no more authority over us. And that's been proven in history time and again. That's how the American Revolution happened, right? I mean, so we need another American Revolution, and this is we've got to reclaim what, what's been taken in many ways from us. And so that's um, kind of in a nutshell what people can do. But like I say, the most important thing is to talk about this more, and uh, that's what I'm here for. So, um, You know, just uh, I, I wanted to give you a chance to um, provide all that before the music starts, but I think we have a few more minutes, and I wanted to just uh, – you know, expand on what you point out in terms of, you know, these, this is, this is truly uh, a moment in time where, you know, real revolution, not tinkering at the edges is necessary. And it's something, um, thankfully, more and more prominent uh, intellectuals, journalists, and others are coming to recognize, and uh, not the least of which, is, um, you know, Pulitzer Prize-winning former New York Times editor Chris Hedges, where he is very deliberate in his use of language about the need to, you know, completely throw off these systems that are oppressing us. Um, we've just become so inured to them. It's, you know, almost, though you, you're... Uh, perspective on Americans and their um, feelings about their government is interesting to me because I, I have the, a very different experience, um, probably because I don't have the relative experience with 
Canadians, but um, I find that so many Americans are uh, have this sort of Stockholm syndrome. Right. Yep. Um, around the idea that oh, it was back then; it would never happen now. We've got new people; it's all different. You know, we're we're beyond that now. We're you know, even going back, I I'm learning myself. I was recently reading some very um, meticulously researched work by Donald Jeffries on uh, going back to the origins of the United States and the work of Abraham Lincoln as president, who was turns out was an absolute tyrant. <laughs> and like we're not, I'm, I didn't mean to try to romanticize America. I, it's the notion it was founded on, which is inherent in all of us. And that is we right, can govern right, right. ourselves. It's that simple. Uh, so you're right. I see that everywhere in America, that kind of this corporatized mentality where people have lost any sense that they can do anything, this atomized right. existence. But we can recover that. It's very easy. I've seen in practice how quickly that can fall away uh, when people realize that uh, their lives are at stake, right, and our liberties and our children are at stake, you know. So, um, no, I, I don't mean to in any way, um, you know, I, you're right what you're saying about these things. I'm just um, realizing the the contrast there is going from Canada to America. Um, right. You know, that there is still a lot of that within kind of even the subconscious of Americans. And don't forget, you know, people can talk about revolution and change. How much do we really want to change? You know, I find right. that it's, it's fine for people to talk in the abstract, but change is a, is a brutal process. And we know personally, yes. we don't like to look at things. We like to hold on to security. And do people want liberty more than security? Um, you know, like Ben Franklin said, if you value your security more than liberty, you don't deserve either. <laughs> right? Right. You've got to risk. Right. You've got to lose. That's what change is all about. And I find people tend to hold back and want somebody else to do it for them. But um, you've got to find everywhere. There's only one or two people in any group of people who are willing to have the, the guts to lead it. And you've got to find those people, and um, that's what a good organizer does. You locate those folks, make them the leader, get, get them to be the leadership locally, because I'm not going to do it for you, right? Right, right. And, and, you know, again, as part of human nature, you know, when um, one person steps forward, others tend to follow. So um, it, it's, it's a natural process uh, that that we can implement and um, people are going to be drawn to just innately. So, um, and, and, you know, one of the things in terms of the, the educational process, you know, uh, this is something that's been civics and the, you know, idea of self-rule and all of this are not topics that are um, taught any longer in American education systems. And I think, you know, part of what you're talking about for people to realize that, in fact, there is an imminent danger, which, you know, again, I think with many Americans, they are completely unaware of the very real and imminent threat that they're facing. But um, even just having the conversation, as you pointed out, is a, a critical part of this and, and right. starting that whole um, process going. That's good, Patricia. I mean, I, I, that's what I urge everyone to, who's listening to take this to heart and say, look, it's up to me now. What can I do? Think of one step you can take next to, to start initiating this stuff. So um, 
Kevin, what, you know, I was thinking about what you were saying about the um, Catholic Church and how Roman law uh, seems to, or Vatican law seems to um, usurp that of other nations. And it also makes me, um, I, I was wondering if this is something that sort of emerged in your universe of work, but um, this Noahide law movement among Zionists, this, you know, it, to me, the Vatican is the Roman Empire under veil of religion. I mean, it's, <laughs> and, exactly. and for me, um, Zionism is the exact same thing, except they're using a, a religion by a different name. And right. so, um, how, you know, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by how this all came about with the, the Vatican and its ability to uh, subvert the national law, you know, the sovereign law of nations with its law. Can, do you have any history or knowledge you could share? Oh, yeah. We could do a whole show on that. It really deserves a whole sure. show um, <laughs> on that whole theme. I go into some of that in my books. Uh, we talk about it in murderbydecree.com. But in a nutshell, what's happened is, is you're right, it was a, a Roman Empire. The Catholic Church was the first corporation in history. And a corporation stands outside any other law. It's a law unto itself. And so in, in practice, no, the Pope is not head of state. No, they don't have a law that supersedes ours. But governments allow that to happen because the revenue of the Catholic Church every year exceeds $50 billion, and they can buy anybody they like if they're willing to be bought. Um, you know, why do you think the Pope was made Time Magazine's Man of the Year, just like Adolf Hitler was in 1938? <laughs> I mean... It's, it's because, unfortunately, in our system, with enough money and PR support, you can get people to believe anything, especially when there's the whole notion which comes out of the Middle Ages, it really goes back to the times of, of the Roman Empire, that the emperor, i.e. the pope, is some kind of bridge between God and mankind. Well, to a Christian, that's supposed to be the role of Jesus Christ, not a man. And so in a, in, in a basic sense, you could say the Catholic Church is not a Christian religion, it's, like you say... A, a, a system out of the Roman Empire based on emperor worship. It's like a cult. Um, and a cult doesn't have standing under international law or any domestic law. It's just only when people allow it to have that power in their own minds and in the legal and political system, that's when they become a threat. So we, gotta, we can take away all those privileges they have that allow them to do these crimes. It's just a matter of getting people to say, look, um, you can believe whatever you want as long as it doesn't harm another person. Once you do, you're all under the same law, you know, the law of common law, the law of nature, the law of the land here, not some statute that a cardinal has written in Rome saying, yes, you can rape children and get away with it. You know, so um, it's really that simple, but it's, there's a lot of aspects of it, manifestations over the centuries that are important to talk about. You know, maybe we can do a show on that sometime. Yeah, that would be great. One of the things that Evelyn had, um, an effort she had undertaken um, in the months before she passed away, was to put up notices outside of all the Catholic churches um, she could find uh, about pedophiles, and where if she if she were able to find a priest on the uh, or, or demanding that any priest be. Um, listed on a sexual offender registry and um, sort of just bringing home the point about these guys being remaining among us, even though they've already been found to have 
raped children. And, um, you know, it then sort of dawned on me as you were talking too that, you know, maybe this is, you know, one area where people in their communities feel they can make a difference is, you know, maybe they pursue a registry of all Catholic priests um, living in the community and um, maybe where where they have an incident they attempt these tribunals with local uh, church officials who might be guilty of these crimes we have a way of doing that that's a big part of our campaign we do that all the time with people we have flyers that I can email anybody just write to the common land at gmail.com. I'll send you one of these flyers. It's basically an appeal to local Catholics saying, do not put money in that collection plate. You're colluding in a crime when you do it. Keep the money in your community. Don't send it off to Rome. Um, appeal to the priests not to enforce this policy of crimen. Uh, you know, I've worked with priests who have left the church uh, over this policy. So they, there's a lot of leverage just that knowledge can bring. So I'd urge people, uh, and we could talk more about that, Patricia, about how we do that. Um, it's really powerful to do that kind of work on the ground. That's how we change things. That's how we got a pope to resign because of a lot of that kind of work. Well, and as you pointed out, and is clearly the case with all these powerful individuals and the institutions they oversee, that their public reputations are paramount to them. And so any... Um, chinks in that armor that they hide behind are invaluable to not only weakening uh, the armor itself, but, you know, psychologically, it's a wound that um, puts them on the defensive. And that obviously is where we want them, because, you know, we're the ones on the defensive right now. Like, I've, you know, what, what we have to talk to Catholic priests and say, let's get together, sign a petition to your bishop saying we're not going to enforce this policy. If we know of a child being raped, we're going to tell the police. And if the Pope wants us to do otherwise, he's engaged in a criminal act, and we're not obligated as American citizens to, to do that at the behest of a foreign ruler. So um, that's when you st- once you start doing that, I'm telling you, the church starts panicking because um, you've gotten in behind their defenses. And that's psychologically, like you say, a really important thing to do. So, yeah, I would – the sky's the limit on this, right? And uh, really, we got to take these kind of actions more and more. And, and that seems very um, uh, accessible for many individuals to work on the local level that way as a starting point yep. and, you know, sort of bolster their experience, share with others so that they – feel empowered to um, move forward with those kinds of actions. And once we gain a body of experience and um, institutional knowledge regarding the, you know, the, the pitfalls or, or um, best ways to approach these, we can have greater successes. Um, so I, I really, you know, admire your tenacity and and thank you deeply from the bottom of my heart for all the work you've done i i think for a lot of us too who are newer to the movement is that you know we there are so many like you who have suffered for decades <laughs> trying well, to well thanks patricia no we'll, we'll do it we'll carry it on in in the memory of evelyn as well we'll do this thanks patricia i'll talk thank to you, you soon kevin bye-bye Bloody 